my life expectancy when that photo was taken was 27 seconds. I have 27 seconds before I impact the earth unless I do something to save myself. Maybe if you don't want to talk, you could just listen. What is happening? I am Mal Foster and you are listening to the latest episode of your third favourite, above average, but infinitely curious podcast, Dimed Out. Now, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, it is definitely worth a listen, because it covers some of my favourite things, the Beatles, and interdimensional travel. So, yeah, you know, obviously, if you haven't checked it out, you really should go and take a listen. Unless, of course, you dislike the Beatles and interdimensional travel, in which case, honestly, I don't know if we can be friends anymore. In all seriousness, this week's episode is a lot more grounded. Or is it? That sort of half-assed pun will make a lot more sense as we get into the episode. I really don't want to pull things back or delay this episode any further, because this episode, this conversation, this guest was absolutely fantastic. I'm going to introduce the guest in just a moment, but a little bit of housekeeping slash um, excuse making, I guess, on my behalf. When I conducted this interview, I was still in Britain at the start of the year back in January. I didn't have any equipment other than my internal mic on my computer and the internal camera. So from my end, the audio is shit. I'm just, you know, I'm not pulling any punches here. From my end, the audio is a bit shit, to say the least. So, yeah, I'm just getting that out of the way. I'm just putting that out there. Yeah, so my audio is a bit shit, but the conversation and the guest are anything but. This story that you're about to hear is amazing and inspirational and just brilliant in every sense of the word. I learned a great deal talking to our guest this week, Dr. Kevin Payne, and I had my perspective significantly altered by talking to him as well. But who is Dr. Kevin Payne? That is a question you may very well be asking, understandably so, and to answer it, here is the man himself. So who am I? Probably three important points. One, My doctorate's in sociology and psychology. I spent 15 years as a professor. I've studied people for 30 years. For the last decade or so, I've I've focused on studying why some people succeed and others fail when faced with a chronic health condition that they're not going to get away from. That's actually an extension of research that I began all the way back in the 90s. Second thing that people are probably uh, find relevant is that I live with multiple sclerosis, and mm-hmm. I first became system I, I first became symptomatic of MS back in 1989 when I was in college, mm-hmm. and it went undiagnosed and then misdiagnosed for a number of years, which is not unusual with MS because it's a weird condition. 
Yeah. And I was I was uh, formally correctly diagnosed in 2006. Wow. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is I am, in spite of all that, an enthusiastic skydiver. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 that is. Uh, not only for me was it about reclaiming a childhood dream I thought I'd lost due to uh, the weirdness with my body and getting it to do what I wanted to do, uh, but also because there came a point in my life where my body had betrayed me so much that it became the thing that I was most afraid of in my life. All right, so introductions done. Let's get into it. Let's not waste any more time. This is my absolutely cracking conversation with Dr. Kevin Payne. And uh, yeah, I sincerely hope you enjoy this half as much as I did. Ready? Go! How do you want me to address you? Because I'm always a little bit with this with with doctors. Um, you know, the human in me wants to refer to you in a humane way and just call you Kevin. But I totally respect, obviously, your credentials. Uh, well, I, I, I only use the doctor with the initial introduction when it's professionally appropriate. Okay. And then after that, I'm Kevin. Right. Okay. Cool. Well, I will if introduce I... you. I will introduce you with your doctor beforehand, but just throughout the rest of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kevin's a perfectly serviceable name. It, it I works. always, I always think so, and because I always try, no matter the background or the the career, the profession, whatever I have guests from, if they have had a doctorate and I've had a couple on, I always want to talk to them on a human level. But at the same time, thankfully, I haven't had anybody sure. be sort of pernickety about it and just get real snippy about me not calling them doctor. But I always like to just well, err on the side of caution. You know what? It's a certain it's a certain sign that if if I insist on someone calling me doctor, yeah. either one, I think you're a dick, or <laughs> I'm being one. Yeah, yeah. I think one that, of the two. With your case, I think it's incredibly curious and fascinating. So I'm really grateful for the sort of bullet points that you gave me and the links to the website and resource and stuff. I am going off your bullet points. I've done a tiny bit of research, but I think because your story is genuinely very fascinating and inspirational, me personally, I'd like to kind of hear it more from you than than reading it from a, a PDF or a website. So before we kind of do dive any further, uh, for anybody that is listening that maybe doesn't really that's maybe heard the term ms and i'm going to shorten it to that because i have a real problem saying that this the, the scroll i can't even say it now so yeah <laughs> we're just going to shorten it to ms for my sake um for anybody that maybe has heard the term in passing but doesn't really know what it is or what it entails how would you describe it from either your perspective or just sure. from a general perspective sure it is well it is a weird one and multiple sclerosis. Notice how I did go ahead and use the yeah, whole yeah. term there. Yeah, hey, it if, is if a mouthful. You can, if you can, go for it. <laughs> it it is a mouthful. Addicted. Well, I've had to practice because <laughs> I've had to say it a lot. Yeah. So uh, multiple sclerosis is uh, an autoimmune condition. And we didn't actually know this even as early as you know, when I was diagnosed, they were still uncertain about that. So in the last few years, 
we understand that what happens is there's some kind of infection that we get Mm -hmm. that is a normal infection that everybody gets. And because most likely, because we have a genetic proclivity, when that happens, our immune systems overreact and they start attacking a part of our own body because they're confused and they think that it's some kind of something that we need to be protected from. Right. And so like many other autoimmune conditions, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, I mean, there's, there's a gazillion of them now that we realize are autoimmune. Uh, in, in my case, with multiple sclerosis, the part of our bodies that are getting attacked are the myelin, which is a fatty sheath that wraps around the neurons in our central nervous system, in our brain and our spinal cord. And that myelin acts like the insulation on the wires in your house. Right. So when that that insulation gets eaten away, our neurons short circuit. Mm. And and so the signals get weird. And because everything we do think, feel, say, hope, dream, whatever, passes through our central nervous system, our symptoms can be almost anything. So for example, for me, the common symptoms that I always have, I'm always in pain. Mm. I'm always fatigued. I'm always dealing with some cognitive confusion. I always have numbness and parathesias going on. So usually the numbness is below my knees and my lower legs. Uh, But if I get tired or distressed or too hot or too cold, my symptoms can get worse. And that often happens. So like if I get overheated, then that numbness will start spreading through my whole body and my fatigue will get immediately a lot worse. And I just have to stop. If I get too cold, cold sensitivity causes my legs to go spastic. So now if I get too cold for too long, they will freeze up and I will just fall over. Yeah. I can't walk. Uh, All in all, there are a list of about 30 other symptoms (laughs) that come and go in my case. So so it seems like there's a lot of variables and it seems like there's no sort of uniformed set. Like everybody will experience different things based on on their genetic makeup, basically. Well, it is. And and where the the damage occurs, because different parts of our brain and spinal cord control different things and so it is often called a snowflake disease because no two snowflakes are alike and no two cases of ms are alike is this is this why you weren't correctly diagnosed until 2006 do you believe because that to me was curious like you you obviously lived with this for a lot longer than that diagnosis but how is it that you only got correctly diagnosed just until at that point Well, there are two reasons. One is exactly this, because certain symptoms are 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 easier to, you know, they're they're more commonly considered part of MS. So Mm -hmm. MS is considered a diagnosis of exclusion often. Mm -hmm. So you can present with a bunch of symptoms and 
there can be a lot of different possibilities for those sorts of symptoms, and they usually go through every other possibility, and MS is what's left over, although now uh, with, uh, with MRIs and spinal taps, we can get pretty conclusive yeah. with our diagnoses. But, you know, over 30 years ago, they didn't understand as much as that. Sure. And two, when I went to the university physician uh, then, I was, I was in a demanding academic program, and he probably fixated on the, because what happened to me first was my balance went weird, and I started having what are called isocades. And it's kind of like when your eyeballs stutter. Oh, and they, and they, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so I had those and I, I felt tired. And then I also felt confused. Mm-hmm. And I got really down about it. Yeah. And he focused on the, oh, you're really down about whatever's going on in your life. And he said, oh, you're depressed. And he's, and he referred me to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist said, yeah, you're depressed. Here's some drugs. And I tried the drugs and the drugs didn't work. And I, and he tried some different drugs and they didn't work and tried some different drugs and they didn't work. So they said, oh, it's treatment resistant depression. Well, I, I never even heard that. So. Oh, no, no, no. It, it's common. It's common. Oh, okay. Uh, because, because drugs don't work in um, a large case a large number of cases of depression. If you yeah. look at the statistics behind it, the number needed to treat is usually pretty high mm-hmm. uh, with with that. So in a few months, I was back to normal. And so I went on with my life and I didn't really think about it. And the only thing that persisted was the itching. Right. So I, I started itching in 1989 and I've never stopped. And, th- and that can be really frustrating. <laughs> because you can imagine, yeah. Scratching, scratching doesn't do anything right? Meds don't do anything because it's nerve damage. Right. So, so I just, I, I, I had to literally learn to live with. Wow. And, and it's really distracting, but I had to learn for it not to be distracting. Yeah. Well, so I had some episodes that came and went over the years and there was, there was a particularly nasty one, uh, you know, in the late nineties and, and, I did really get depressed over that, and I ended up uh, jettisoning my normal health habits, and I gained 120 pounds, and uh, that was quite an odyssey right there. So <laughs> yeah. two years, I gained 120 pounds, realized, ooh, and then lost it again in, 100, in, wow. in two years, and have kept it off since then, but, but it wasn't until 2002 that I started getting the numbness right? and the numbness. So I woke up one morning in 2002 and I couldn't feel my left leg below my knee. Now that's oh. a much more obvious MS sign. Right. Okay? That's, okay. that's something that's much more common with MS okay. and, and, and easier to kind of identify and put your, put your finger on. So, so at first I thought I would just overdone my workout and pinched a nerve or something. And and so I didn't think about it and it went away and then it came back and went away. It came back and went away. And then it was different body parts. And then finally one morning I woke up and I could feel my right arm and my head, but the rest of my body had disappeared. And at that point, my then wife said, 
you're going to get this looked at. Yeah. So, so part of the reason why it took so long for me was because MS is a weird condition. Right. The but the other reason, of it. yeah. And but the other reason is, I'm I'm a typical dumb guy, <laughs> and I tend to downplay right. things. I'm fine. It's all right. It'll go away. I'll be okay tomorrow. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and like most young men, I lived in this illusion of my own invulnerability mm-hmm. for a long time. Right. So. Yeah, <laughs> a heady mix of the two. Um, yeah, wow. That's I. I can only imagine the inconsistencies. Uh, obviously, not uh, helping in terms of being able to nail down what's going on, but the, the fact that you're having these symptoms for a while and then they're going away, and then you're not really understand. There's it understandably causes a lot of distress and depression, but also a lot of confusion. I would imagine. Yes. Not only for me, but for all the people around me, yeah. too. Because you can't see from the outside what's happening. Right. There's, there's no obvious external cue. And, and the only time people ever suspect something is amiss in my system is when I have difficulty walking. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not too typical because most people don't see that. Usually that happens for me toward the end of the day right. when I get really tired. Mm-hmm. And so I try to time things appropriately. I very rarely use a cane, although occasionally I do. Uh, but I try to, you know, I'm, I'm good now about understanding what the leading indicators are. And I know when it's starting to kick in. So I will pull an Irish fade and get out of there <laughs> before, you know, any, before people are the wiser. Um, I want to kind of get onto the next part of your trajectory. Um, going from your notes, I'm just going to read them verbatim just it's easier for me that way. Um, so the notes you sent over to me, it says here, you spent a decade supporting a wife dying of cancer. Your brain didn't work. Your body didn't work. Your career was in shambles and you were alone. And you've even put here, my dog even died traumatically in front of me. You gave up and you were on the verge of suicide. Now, given all of that, um, and I don't know how much you want to get into this. This is completely up to you. Um, I don't want oh, you to. No, I'm an open book. I mean, that's, okay. that's why I'm doing this. Well, that's that's great. And I totally appreciate that. But I just want to throw that out there because obviously these are sure. very hard sort of personal touchstones upon your trajectory and your, your path to where you are now. So I, I always want to leave that open to people to talk about or not talk about at their own will. Um, understandably. Well, a couple of years ago, I couldn't do that. Right. And, you know, and that was one of the reasons that's what we can maybe get into this, but that, that I had to rebuild a lot of confidence in my life. It was only by becoming a skydiver that I managed to get myself back to that point. Well, that's kind of where I was heading with here, because all of those are obviously significant, poignant, as I say, touchstones in your trajectory and your, your journey to where you are now. And understandably, having gone through all of that. I mean, even going through just one of those elements would be enough to push somebody to to the edge. Uh, To me, and this is why I really didn't want to kind of dig too much into your story beforehand, is because you've also wrote here, you decided to use, as you've just said, your expertise to rebuild your body, your brain and your life. Now, to me, just reading that on the surface is already incredibly inspirational because that is a lot 
to have gone through, add on to everything you've just talked about prior to this section. How the hell did you do that, Kevin? Because I can't even begin to fathom how I would manage to even have the, 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 the drive to even attempt to kind of move past that. That's, yeah, it's kind of scrambled my brain a little bit. Well, it, it had been year after year of, of really awful traumatic things mm. that had, had been happening. And, and so, yeah, I, at, at, at my worst, when my MS was at its worst, uh, my my family decided, my wife and kids decided that this was too much, and they left. And and they're not bad people. They were overwhelmed. And nobody yeah. trains us for this. No. And they could get away, but I can't. So after all of this, and I really am, I, there, there, there is a point that we don't often talk about where we in the popular consciousness we think of suicide as an emotional decision right we're really really sad and we just can't take it anymore and it's oh woe is me and yeah you know it's it's very melodramatic and in some cases that is true you know and of course i had a real advantage here because i had all of the education about people you know, got the doctorate in sociology and psychology, and I, I've spent 30 years studying people. I spent 15 years as a professor, and and during that time as a professor, I taught 164 sections of 30 different classes at the undergraduate and graduate level. So I'm I'm I was walking around with an encyclopedic knowledge of hey. people. Yeah, and 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 so. That gave me a different perspective on all of this. And, mm. and one of the things that I had been researching from the 90s was that question of why do some people succeed or fail under extreme circumstances? And then later with my own life, I, I kind of refined it into working into chronic health conditions. But, right. but I, so I, I, you know, I had a lot of applicable knowledge and I, and I knew you know, there, there comes this point where, and I got there personally, where you have so many traumatic things that happen to you without having the opportunity to rest and recover in between them, that the effect is your emotions become completely overwhelmed and, and you don't have them anymore. Because right. you don't have the opportunity to rest and recover and, and build that emotional energy up again. So you become dead inside. So it's kind of like your emotional system is just overloaded and crashed. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I was at that point. And so many awful things had happened that, that I came to the point where I honestly could, not, could no longer see a path. Mm-hmm. from where my life then was forward to any life I thought I could attain and would enjoy living. Yeah. And and when I got to that point, when rationally it didn't seem like there was a good future for me and I could objectively 
see a world without me in it and think, yeah, that's probably a pretty good thing. Then I knew I was in trouble. And so around that time, my my son, who was uh, then around oh, 13 or 14, uh, said to me, Dad, you know you really suck at doing things for yourself. And and on the one hand, it's a funny, cheeky thing for a teenager to say. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, you know, it, it's it's really crushing mm. for a father to hear a son say that. Yeah. As well. Yeah. And and I also knew he was right because I had spent so many years. I had so I had so little energy. I'd spent so many years trying to support their mother through cancer, yeah. trying to make sure that as a one income family of four, we still had a roof over our heads. As you know, and, and all of that stuff. And and I had there's one thing short term when you're going through a short term difficult problem, you can kind of push self care off mm-hmm. a few days or, right. or or maybe a week or two, but I was going through these periods. You know, I went through this for years, where it was like, okay, I pushed it off. You know, maybe next week, and then I thought, oh, it didn't end up being as good as I thought in the next week, and so I'm going to push it off again. And I was kicking the can down the road, and I was so depleted. And and I had gone through an exacerbation to my multiple sclerosis that was primarily cognitive. It was a right frontal temporal lesion. It was a massive exacerbation. And what that means is I was having difficulty with higher cognition. I was having difficulty processing social signals. I was having difficulty controlling my emotions. Lots of things. I mean, the laundry list for for damage in that part of your brain reads like dementia and and this had happened right after i had left the safest job in the world as a professor and was out on my own with no safety net and a family to support as a tech entrepreneur so things went you know balls up yeah (laughs) and and so they left i was alone as I said, you know, my even, you know, my second Akita Nemo passed away from bloat in front of me. And that's all I was hanging on to at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, that was that was the last thing that I had in my life. It was like a connection I cared about. And and so I thought, you know, I am completely at the bottom. I can't find a way forward. My son said, you really suck at doing things for yourself. I said, I am going to give myself one more chance and what i need is i need to develop humility because my system had become so depleted mm. and 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 i had spent so many years as the expert in the room all the time i i i had i had lost my beginner's mindset but i knew my condition had stripped me back so far that I was going to have to go back to the beginning and retrain myself in a lot of ways. Right. And and so I knew two things. One, I needed to do something just for myself, something that I hadn't done just for myself in well over a decade. 
so long that my kids had never even remembered me doing anything just for myself. They had right. no memory in their lifetime of this. And the second thing is my body had become the thing that I was most terrified of in the world. My biggest fear was locked in my carcass with me. And normally our strategy is to try to get away from the things that we fear. Right. Well, I can't get away from it. No, you kind of tethered to that. Yeah. So, so I had to figure out a way to reframe my fear and build some kind of confidence that I had lost. And for me, both of those things were skydiving. So as okay. a little kid in the 70s, I became fascinated with skydiving and, okay. and really wanted to do that. And then in the 90s, as a young man uh, working on my doctorate, mm -hmm. I started training to become a skydiver for the first time. And I got a handful of jumps in and it was just impossible. People don't understand skydiving is not just a hobby. It's a lifestyle choice. Okay. There is a lot of work and training involved in learning how to fly your body in free fall and then fly a canopy as well. We've right. got to be pilots twice over. And so uh, I had a handful of jumps, but then there was this 20-year gap. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and I had to, you know, I said, if I'm, if I'm wanting to do anything just for myself, because let's face it, there is no practical reason to fling yourself out of an airplane <laughs> no. repeatedly. Right. There's just, there's no practical reason. And yet, while most people can, can completely understand the fear involved yes. with skydiving, yeah. because it is, it is unnatural, the fear is on the inside of the plane. And once you pass through that door, once you pass through that fear, there is such joy mm -hmm. and there is such focus and you are not distracted by anything. No matter what your problems are in the world, you are focused right here, right now, mindfully in this moment when you are hurtling to the earth at better than 100 miles an hour. There's no distraction. Yeah, and it, and it seems to me, from my perspective, I've I've never done it, but the, the the fear does seem to lie in the the apprehension. I just perceive that, and it's something that I have considered, um, and and mm -hmm. maybe maybe this will actually inspire me to finally go ahead and do it. Um, the the apprehension is where the fear lies. It's it's not uh, so much the actual doing of it. It's pushing yourself literally over the edge and just throwing yourself into it. it's that sort of invisible barrier uh that holds yeah in, in you know in, in, in many ways because because once you are in it yeah you're committed yeah that's you're it. either you, going to do yeah. this right or you're going to catastrophically fail and you're right. dead and uh, there's there's you know not a lot of in between uh, skydiving is a dangerous activity that can be done safely mm -hmm. and uh, modern skydiving has an extraordinarily high safety record. Last year in the United States, there were over three and a half million skydives. There were 10 fatalities. That is, that is the best year on record in skydiving. They've been keeping records for 70 some years now. And, and so there is that. But for me, 
my fear wasn't the height, wasn't the skydiving, coming back to it. Yeah. My fear was, see, there is a point, and if you, you've seen the cover of my book, right? Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's this, you know, and, it, and it, it's a great shot. Took us eight jumps over six weeks to get this exact image because this image tells the story of the book and it's exactly what I wanted on the book. This isn't just like a random, you know, frame. It's, this was purposeful to get here. As you see, that photo was taken at 5,000 feet. I'm headed to the earth at 120 miles an hour. And I've got my hands up to my forehead, like I'm saluting with both hands and I'm about to sweep them out in a broad gesture. Mm -hmm. And every skydiver will recognize that gesture. And I just, and I explain it in the prologue. What it is, is it's called the wave off. And the wave off is what we do when we are warning everybody else in our airspace that we're about to deploy our parachute. Okay. So look at it this way. At, at 5,000 feet, my life expectancy when that photo was taken was 27 seconds. I have 27 seconds before I impact the earth unless I do something to save myself. And so what I am doing is I'm telling everyone around me, I may be in what most people would consider an overwhelming set of circumstances mm. at the mercy of forces far bigger than I am. But right here, right now, in the face of certain death, I am going to actively choose life. And I am going to save myself. And for me, if I could save myself every time with my wonky body, because it took normally it takes you 25 jumps to get your first license in skydiving, your A license. It took me 47 because I had a lot of extra work I had to do right. with my legs and, yeah. and all that. So if I could save myself every time, I could build a level of trust in my body and in my system that I had completely lost. So in 2019, I went back and I did that and I logged about 140 jumps and, and got my A and B licenses. So in 2020, I set myself a higher goal. I said, I'm going to become a serious, legitimate skydiver. And what that means, really, in skydiving, your entry level into being a serious skydiver is when you cross 500 jumps. Because at 500 jumps, then you are eligible for all the licensing in the field, and you are eligible for professional ratings. So what that meant was... I would be jumping at least once a day, every day for the entire year. Well, yeah. And that's what I did. In 2020, I jumped 370 times, flinging myself at the earth and saving myself every time. And that's what I needed. There's, there's a lot to kind of really dig into there. I want to say, first and foremost, the 27-second life expectancy thing is... I think not only is it an, an obvious literal thing that you're talking about there, but I think there's a lot of, of deeper power to that as well. Like you could take that and apply it to 
just a, a general and I suppose that's kind of what you're trying to do with uh, what you're doing at the minute is kind of springboard that into the minds of people and maybe going through difficult times difficult conditions is exactly is, is that crystallized I think that's wonderful um yeah it's just I, I hadn't even considered that but it's yeah it's just a really powerful way of framing it um the other thing and for me and I'm presuming that with each jump that you've done from that point from when you first decided okay this is what I'm doing for me this is how I feel I can rebuild um confidence trust in myself and just rebuild myself in general I take it that you felt a little bit more power being given back to you with each one and it just kind of built up with each successful jump each time you literally saved your own life uh, you kind of yeah. gave yourself a little bit more power and trust back into, into yeah exactly Mark, who, and what you can do. because when i when i came back to skydiving see i wrote this book once and i was going to release it a couple of years ago and it was all science mm-hmm. and i sent it out to some people i respect for their feedback and everybody was like yeah science is great but we have to have your story in here. Yeah, absolutely. And and I knew that. And and there was just a little bit of my story. But I was not yet the man who could talk about how dark and how ugly it got. Right. And And I had to go through hundreds of jumps in skydiving to develop the confidence to allow myself to be the man who would say, yeah, this is my whole journey. Mm-hmm. So I, I rewrote it, and, and this version you know, that, that is released is about one-third memoir, two-thirds science. Because I don't want anybody picking up this book to think it's just science guy talking at you. <laughs> I, right. I, I want you to understand that both as diagnosed and as caregiver, I have all the compassion in the world for what you were going through and i have lived it myself i still live it myself and this is on a very practical level the book that i wish somebody had given to me or my wife when Mm -hmm. we were diagnosed right but it wasn't there but it is now it is it is is now and what i'm focusing on yeah, what I, what I really want to emphasize here is, you know, this is not a medical book. I'm not that kind of doctor. I'm a social and behavioral scientist. And what I did was I turned myself into a guinea pig and I started studying myself. But then I interviewed hundreds. I surveyed thousands. I collected millions of data points. I, I looked at thousands of studies across conditions because what I was interested in was not how do you live well with a particular condition? Mm-hmm. I was interested in the question, how do you live well when you're stuck with something really bad that you're never going to be able to get away from? And that, it turns out, the cognitive, emotional, behavioral, social, environmental fallout of, of that condition is shared across hundreds of different diagnoses right and and people with lots and lots of different conditions were telling me versions of the same story mm-hmm. i would say it goes even further than that i think obviously it definitely does apply directly to people with 
uh, medical, biological, mental conditions. But I feel like the, the the core of what you're doing here and the core of what you've kind of come to is something that is generally just inspirational for anybody that is dealing with something, whether it is medical or not. I feel like it's it's a good catalyst to kind of help push people in the in a forward direction. Yeah, I, and and you are right. You 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 understand what I was sneakily doing there, uh, and, <laughs> and and it is you know the subtitle of the book is the science of crafting a good life under chronic distress, pain, and illness, mm-hmm. and and I, it is really crucial there. I think for me, I have always had a massive problem with self help books. Yeah. They, they they bug the living snot out of me. Yeah, and imagine how surprised I was when I came to a point in my life when I wanted to, you know, I felt compelled to write something in that area, mm-hmm. and and then I thought, well, self help is what we have when the system fails us, and the second thing that I thought was, well, you know, this is a condition that I I, I was in this really interesting undergraduate academic program and the first semester of it was a weed out semester and so we started with like 21 of us that had been accepted in the program and we ended with like 13 or 14 that after that semester and what we had to do was it was a seminar where we were reading classic greek thought Hmm. the whole semester back and then having to write about it a lot and and defend ourselves and and it was structured around the issue of eudaimonia and in greek that is the good life so what does the good life mean so so much of plato and aristotle and all those guys really was the self-help literature of their time right yeah and and there have probably been more books written about, well, how do you live a good life than anything else? So, you know, why am I some guy who can add to that conversation? And and for me, it was, I was focused on a little bit different question. And that was, how do you live a good life when there is something intrinsically bad that you must always deal with? Mm-hmm. Because our solution usually is to get away from something bad. If it's fearful, if it's ugly, if it's awful, get away somehow. Or make ourselves feel like we've gotten away by addiction and numbing it and narcotizing dysfunction, those kinds of things. So so it was a little bit different question. And there have not been nearly as many uh, efforts out there in history to to address that question Mm -hmm. i want to take you back to um the skydiving real quick and to your first dive since you've decided you want to do this because to me that's that obviously we talked about how you kind of built up a level of trust and confidence and you've given yourself a, a level of power back with each successful one but the first one um how was that for you beforehand so you're up in the plane and you're about to finally do this You've kind of gone mm-hmm. through your history that you've had with MS. You've reached that point. 
where we talked about the emotional overload and crash. And this is your, as you say, you're going to give yourself one more chance to do this for you. Uh, how was that before the first jump? And especially with having dealt with the symptoms that you've dealt with with your body and that sort of inconsistency and uncontrollable elements to it. I'm, I'm just generally curious as to, to what was kind of going through your head as you're about to sort of take the, the literal plunge. You know, you know, it's funny. That is actually that very moment is the first page of the book. Wow. That's where we start. Okay. We start with <laughs> me, uh, you know, going going out a plane for the first time in a long time. Yeah. And and what I think is really cool about it is that when you do that first jump. You know, not not a tandem jump, but your first you know student jump where you're you're working on your licenses. It's usually called an AFF jump, so it's an accelerated free fall program, and you jump with two instructors. They're not attached to you, but they're hanging on to you mm. when you exit the door, which means that you know you can you can uh, get separated and and all that, and ultimately you are responsible for pulling your own pilot chute and you are responsible for landing yourself and right before you go out they do a gear check and the door is is maybe open at this time and there's you see an experienced skydiver who's holding their body like the top half of their body out of the plane so they can look down and spot Mm -hmm. the load and that's kind of a wacky experience and 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 one of your instructors will probably do some variation of this. And they will get in real close, helmet to helmet, and they will look you square in the eyes and they will say, who's responsible for your life? And you better answer, I am. Because if you don't, they won't take you. Right. If if you are not able to fully enthusiastically, really, you know, and not not with any like sugar coating on here, truly accept responsibility for your life in that moment, you're not going to go. And so that's a real gut check. Yeah. When somebody seriously looks you in the eyes and says, who's responsible for your life? And 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 so that's where we start the book. That, yeah, it, it really uh, in that moment, I imagine that puts even if you hadn't even been thinking about it prior, when those words are uttered to you with such sincerity and integrity at that close range, it really will put it in perspective. If you haven't already reached that point, it'll snap you to that point. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Very um, much so. How, so I'm also going to ask as well. After having done so many, especially in in 2020. Are you still mm-hmm. feeling that same sense of, of uh, presumably of euphoria and control, or has it become a little bit jaded at this point after having done it so many times? No, it becomes different right. as you do it. Because uh, for me, and I think most people who don't skydive think skydivers are uh, adrenaline junkies with a death wish. I think, yeah, and, I think that's probably a common um, misinterpretation, yeah. And, yeah. And and that's, 
you know, yeah, there are some people that are like that that come through <laughs> yeah. the sport. But you know what? They don't stick around very long. Right. They're not welcome because we don't want to jump with you. Right. If yeah. you're like that. No. You know? And and they soon find that what happens is that high that you get that first time, just like any other high, mm-hmm. lessens mm-hmm. as you go because our bodies adapt, because we are marvelously adaptive. And so you will find, I, w- I would hazard a guess to say most experienced skydivers will tell you some kind of variation of what I'm about to say. And that is, yes, it it is exciting and it is a sense of accomplishment, but what it really is, is it is the most amazing, connected, mindful sense of peace. And it truly is because you don't feel like you're falling. You feel like you're floating or you're flying. And and as you jump more, your bodily control in space becomes much more intuitive and habituated, just like most of us have on the ground, mm-hmm. right? And and so you you learn. Oh, I you know my fr- my friend is a hundred yards over there, and and now I'm just I'm not even thinking about it, and I'm just you know tracking like Iron Man through the sky exactly where I want to be and pulling up right with my friend. And, you know, we're doing acrobatics and we're doing formations and we're doing, you know, lots and lots of other things because there are always new skills to learn Mm -hmm. as you do it. There's always new ways to grow. But fundamentally, it is this almost spiritual experience because at once you feel so large and so expansive and so connected to everything. But at the same time, you feel so small right. and insignificant. Yeah. And, 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 and that is just this awesome dichotomy of life. And, and everything that, that humanity has built is, looks like children's toys <laughs> scattered across the horizon. And, and you see, the world from horizon to horizon. That's amazing. And and it is it is just an awesome view. And it's a view that most people never see. Yeah. Because even if you're in a pilot, even if you're in a plane, you got a window between you and and that view. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's only a handful of us who do certain kinds of air sports who ever get that amazing viewpoint and and you can do you know things like if if i'm if i'm flying on my belly that's about 120 miles an hour if i suddenly go to track and so i sweep my arms back and extend my legs and i look like iron man that goes from a, a 120 to like 200 miles an hour or more in a second who gets to feel acceleration like that it's just i mean you feel much more than human yeah but you also feel so small and so connected to something so much bigger than you hearing those things um being said it it seems to me that it is a great perspective shifter and 
in in a literal and and if you want to go into a deeper sense because as you say you're getting those incredible views but they're changing you know mm-hmm. wide expansive massive but as you come closer towards the ground and then eventually you reach the ground you see it all framed differently and i imagine just from what you're saying um this the, the kind of the the simultaneous disconnect from a lot of fear and anxiety and, and strife but yet the connect with everything around you is is it sounds kind of incredible kevin to be honest it is you know a lot of us a lot of skydivers will will call it the church of altitude that sounds perfect because yeah. Yeah, because it is that kind of experience, and and skydivers call each other sky family, because we are the people who face an an edge activity, right in the face of death, mm-hmm. together. And and so you you get that that kind of connection like you often get, uh, you know, in the military or right. in you know, police officers, that kind of thing, because we are right there. Mm-hmm. And there is, a, there is a phrase, you will sometimes hear skydivers say to one another, blue skies. And oftentimes when we're, we're uh, parting, you'll hear skydivers say blue skies to one another. But that's only half the phrase. The other half of the phrase is, in, is implied. And we almost never say it unless somebody has just burned in. Mm-hmm you know and 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 who has died and the full the full phrase is blue skies black death and and it is a memento mori in the stoic sense of the word yeah, yeah. in you know in the in the sense of the pirate's jolly roger flag this right. reminder that in the face of death we must always seize life and we get that choice Mm-hmm. And so often with a chronic illness or other condition like that, we we lose our sense of agency. Yeah. And we feel like, oh, it's not our choice anymore. And and I'm here to say, no. I I, I totally understand why it can feel that way. I got to that place myself. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it is our choice. And and we can fail at it and fail at it and fail at it. And that's okay because we're at the edge and, and we expect that when we're at the edge. But if we are persistent, we can succeed at that. And this is literally what a lot of the book is about. You know, how do we deal with that edge mm-hmm. and make it our own? I think that's a brilliant place to, to finish up with, Kevin. Um, I do want to point people towards the book. I'm going to throw uh, links in the show notes. You can also, if you have access to the internet, which obviously it's 2022, everybody has access to the internet right now. Uh, you can go check out your lifelivedwell.co. Is that correct for the website? Yes, that Excellent. is. Everything that they could want to know about the book, the podcast, the seminars, everything I do is right there. All the social links, yourlifelivedwell.co. Yeah, exactly. And there is a podcast there. And typically I shouldn't be promoting someone else's podcast, but in this case, I'll make an exception. Well, no, mine is purely, yeah, mine is purely informational. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it, it harkens back to my professorly ways. Yeah. And it's, it's about, here's the 
hardcore research-backed information you need to live well with some aspect of life with a chronic illness. Um, I've listened to a little bit of the latest episode. Obviously, there probably will be newer ones by the time this comes up. But the, the episode I was listening to was The Power of Words, I think is the title of it. Uh-huh which is fantastic. Yeah. And that's something that in the last couple of years, I've really found myself attuned to is how much of a difference the language we choose to use and accept from others can have on us in, in a really positive sense. So yeah, definitely go check that out. And as, as I said, I'll put links in the show notes. Um, Kevin, this has been absolutely brilliant. I was really curious to talk to you because of your story, because of how fascinating and inspiring it was, and, and it didn't disappoint. So thank you very much for your time. Well, I truly appreciate that. Thank you so much, Malcolm. All right, guys, so there you go. That was my conversation with the ever-wonderful Dr. Kevin Payne. I told you, right, that story is amazing and inspirational and genuinely, genuinely made me look at things through a completely different prism, which is always, always a major plus of doing this show and talking to people for the first time. People with amazing stories, with unique backgrounds, with interesting perspectives of their very own, always kind of helps reshape my own perspective. And that's something I'm definitely, definitely grateful for for doing this show hopefully you got a lot from that i honestly don't see how you couldn't uh, i i love what he's doing now as well with with the company your life lived well which you can find links to in the show notes along with links to other places that you can find dr kevin payne as well just just incredible incredible stuff that puts things in perspective and kind of gives you yeah Just a completely different view of things. Speaking of completely different views of things, next week's episode sees us finally diving into the work of Timothy Leary. I did plan on doing it last season, it didn't happen, but this season it damn well has. We're going to be taking a look at two key experiments from his Harvard Psilocybin series, the Concord Prison Experiment and the Good Friday Experiment. Do not Google them if you are unaware of them. Leave it until next week to learn all about them as we dive into the work of Timothy Leary. Yeah, psychedelics, baby. Psychedelics. Looking forward to that. Hopefully you are too. To make sure you do not miss next week's episode, by the way, or any of the other episodes in Season 4 and beyond, is to simply subscribe. If you haven't done so already, that is. Just click that button and you will never miss a future episode ever again. And also, as a nice added bonus, you'll be helping out the show in terms of Google rankings and search rankings and internet stuff and algorithms and, yeah, digital magic. Other things that help with all of that good stuff are nice reviews. If you haven't left us a review yet, please do. We've got some lovely ones up already, and uh, I just cannot get enough of compliments when it comes to reviews. In real life, I'm shit at compliments. Cannot take them. Don't like them. Find it awkward. Don't know what to say. Feel the need to rebuff them and deny that person's opinion. But in terms of reviews, absolutely. Give them to me. I am like smog, hoarding gold when it comes to reviews. Suggest keep them coming. If you want to dig deeper into the world of Dined Out, then there is one single link in the show notes. It will take you to everything, and I mean everything. I'm talking Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, although if you're already on those, then you can just find me at I am Mal Foster. But that one link will take you to everything, including the album 
of incidental podcast music that I put out last year. I think it was last year. And the barely ever mentioned merchandise. All sorts of stuff. Anything that the show has kind of done, produced, or has been connected with, you can find uh, in that one link. And on that note, that about does it for this week. As always, thank you for listening. Look after yourselves, look after each other. And until next time, keep it dimed out. Mm -hmm.